Hello, Bayesian Conspiracy listeners. This is Kyle, the sound editor and sound designer of this podcast. We at the Bayesian Conspiracy are looking for a new musical track to begin and end our podcast, as the heavy metal track that you've been hearing thus far was just meant to be a placeholder that we never got around to updating. That is, until now. So we'd like to ask you, our listeners, some of whom surely have vastly superior musical composition skills than we do, if you'd like to compose something for us. Your name will be credited at the end of every show. Send us your submissions in MP3 format to Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com, and please keep the track no longer than a minute or so in length. Thank you so much for being fans of the show, and we are very much looking forward to hearing what you all come up with. And now, back to the show. Hello, welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And today we have with us Robin Hansen again. Welcome back, Robin. Great to be here. Wonderful. Great to have you. And you are here because you have a new book out called Elephant in the Brain. That's right. Subtitle, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Excellent. And you, this came out like, what, a month ago now? Well, it came out uh, January 2nd for the hardback, uh, December 1st for the paper, for the e-version, but in the United Kingdom, it doesn't come out until February 1st on the hardback, so... All up, oh. spread out. Okay. That's usually they drop things at the same time, don't they? They try to, uh, but apparently big publishers spread across multiple continents don't coordinate that well. Man, that's, that's, that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, you have been, I'm assuming making the tours already with the book and you've been getting some feedback on the blogs before we get into all that. We should probably summarize what the book is to our listeners though, for those who don't know. Well, I think we can let Robin do that if you'd like. Yeah, it is your book. <laughs> Absolutely happy to. The basic idea here is it's the one thing I wish I would have known at the beginning of my career as a social scientist. Okay. We social scientists and policymakers are too naive, and we take people at their word for the main purpose of many common social institutions. So in public speeches or letters of application, people will talk about school as if it's about learning the material. And so then social scientists and policymakers will focus on figuring out better ways to learn the material or which variations help people learn the material faster. Similarly, in medicine, people talk about medicine as if it's about getting healthy. And so then uh, social scientists who study medicine and policymakers who try to reform medicine, they focus on medicine as if it were about trying to make people healthier. And the claim of our book is that in these two cases and many others, we are just wrong about the main purpose of these institutions. And that should be surprising to many of you, and that's why our book should be interesting. Uh, if we are wrong, of course, about these things, then our attempts to reform them are going to go badly. We're just missing the point. And uh, we suggest that this is, in fact, one of the big reasons why people are a lot less interested in uh, proposals for social reform than they are in proposals for physics or other software device reform. The so you I, I remember originally you were a you started out in physics right I, I started you, out in engineering switched to physics then I did okay. philosophy of science for a bit and then finished with a master's in physics then I did nine years of computer research at Lockheed and NASA and at that point at the age of thirty four with two kids age zero and two I switched to get a PhD in uh, social science at Caltech yeah that's I I, I take it that your background in the hard sciences and engineering is what really led you to believe that people are looking for answers is it do you think that 
people who have grown up in the social sciences are more aware of the fact that this is often not the actual case? Well, they are aware of a low level of interest. They aren't so aware of the immediate contrast with the physical and software sciences, and that many of the usual excuses don't explain the difference. So, of course, uh, it's obvious, of course, that the world uh, is conservative and um, not paying attention, and so uh, they'd rather stick with what they've got. If you have a proposal and you show an academic with some weird paper, they're probably not paying attention to it. And you might attribute the lack of interest in social innovations to those things. You might also notice that many proposed social innovations are huge and require vast reorganization of society. And obviously, that's going to be hard and rarely tried. Uh, But what people don't notice is there are a lot of pretty small social innovations, uh, little voting systems, ways to do contracts uh, that are similarly complex to uh, physics and software innovations that we try. And then we have a lot of pretty big, you know, expensive things we try in physics and software. And so I think seeing them uh, both up close uh, makes it clear that there's an actual difference when you hold constant the other things. People are actually less interested in social innovations, all else equal. Do you have an example of like a small local thing that can be fixed that people want to, seem to not want to do? Uh, sure. <laughs> so if uh, we're having a conversation with a couple of people like you and I, uh, we can wonder how to allocate conversation time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way to do it is just uh, do it informally and let somebody dominate if they're socially strong enough. Mm. Uh, other times, people uh, time people and say, you can talk for 30 seconds and you can talk for 30 seconds. That's kind of awkward. Uh, but a, a simple solution is to uh, time each person and then keep a budget and um, collect and then let whoever has talked the least so far take priority if there's any conflicts. And there's some simple ways to do that. Uh, and there's relatively little interest in that. Uh, another simple solution is if you've got uh, a group of people who've got some chores to do and you're trying to decide who should do the next chore, one way is to make it very strict. Uh, you know, you do it on Monday, I do it on Tuesdays, etc. But you ha- can have a simple variation where you have what I call a tug-of-war board where you just have a zero point and every time I do it, I pull it my direction. Every time you do it, you pull it your direction. And then, you know, once it's two or three away from the middle, maybe we'll uh, start to do something more extreme to... Um, keep somebody up. But again, those are just two very small examples. And there's a vast world uh, of other possibilities out there. So you're you're pretty famous for saying the in general X is not about Y. Uh, and this is the on... book about that. Or yeah, you, you could claim it's not the book about that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this book's really about social prestige, right? That's why you're, well, you're exactly could be about multiple things. But so on the surface, when... it's about the X is not about a Y. Well, yeah. and, and you, you make the joke in there, I think, in the conversation chapter that, you know, your two authors wrote this really just, you know, one one reason might not just be to share our ideas because then we could do it for free on our blogs. But we wrote this book because we like the prestige of getting published and all that. Well, um, the wonderful thing is I have read almost everything here on your blog over the last 10 years. Maybe not almost all of it, but like a lot of it I picked up through your blog. And so what what was the the reason for publishing the book, was it like to create a single shelling point and put this officially into the public discourse? Uh, yeah. So it's a lot easier for people to share an idea and, and to point to it when there's a book that represents it. Uh, books uh, grant authority and credentials that a bunch of blog posts don't, and they have an integrated whole. Uh, if, if you point to blog posts, you're not, not sure you're missing the right ones, or what, should you read the entire blog, or, or will it be enough to read particular posts? Well, are you missing conversation between a book 
uh, it puts that all together and also even makes it more accessible. When, when you're writing a blog post, you don't introduce all of the ideas behind everything in the same way you might do for a book. So this mm-hmm. book summarizes the background ideas you might need to know that I wouldn't bother to explain on the on the blog. <laughs> Uh, puts them all in an order and says, if you read these all in this order, you'll get it. Uh, you won't be missing something. Oh, shit. I just had a bad insight about my motivations. <laughs> like, I always assumed I like blogs better because they're simpler and I can read them like piecemeal day to day. But now it sounds like I may like blogs because they are harder for outsiders to get into. <laughs> yeah, it's an exclusive <laughs> access. You can show that because you get it, you've been reading it regularly and that distinguishes you from others. Well, damn. <laughs> so I think this actually brings up, uh, I mean, obviously you're the guy to ask about this, but the whole X isn't really about Y, it's really about Z. Um, I think that's a false dichotomy that it's not that it's really, you know, say, uh, um, in this case, Inyash is reading a blog post as opposed to books isn't, so on the surface it might have been, it's because he likes learning stuff, but it's not really about that. It's really about him liking exclusive knowledge. But I think it's fair to say that it's about both. Right, and that, I think that's sure, the case sure. in most of these I, I things. Mean, to be precise, almost everything humans do uh, can you know, have enormous numbers of effects, and therefore there can be an enormous number of motivations for almost everything. And obviously, for averaging over any big area like medicine or education or even blog posts, uh, if we add that all up, there's going to be thousands of motivations that contribute to those behavior. So, how can we ever say anything if there's thousands? Well, we can talk about the main motivations, the ones that are most driving behavior. And of course, as social scientists, this is what we do usually want to talk about. We do know that everything has enormous implications, but still, we want to understand the social world. So we start to start with the biggest things and say, well, what are the main motives here? And so for each area, there is a main motive that we most often go to if we are asked to justify or explain what we're doing, even though there are many other things. Uh, so for going to school, people say it's to learn the material. But of course, they meet friends there. They, they can be a nice place to sit out and have a picnic. Uh, you know, you could be not, not know what else to do. So you do this by default. I mean, you know, there's thousands of reasons. But That's again, <laughs> there's, a usual, there's a usual story we say. And so that would be the X. Um, you know, uh, it's not about X. Um, or, and then um, if we ask among these other possible motives... Which one is actually much bigger than we like to admit? And perhaps more plausibly is the main motive. And that would be the other one. And so, but of course, there are many thousands more always going on. Yeah. So to make it like kind of personal and uncomfortable at this moment, in in theory, we are having this conversation to like share information about your book. Is that like the primary reason why we're doing this? Or is there alternate reasons that are that dominate? You know, if we had asked you a month ago before you anticipated having me on, <laughs> if somebody had you on an interview show and they say, well, why do you do the podcast? Uh, I'm sure you could imagine what you would have said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Because it feels good to because i am a fame whore (laughs) i want everyone in the world to know my name in addition there'd be a large mix of motives for each motives there's a whole chain of causation so there's Mm -hmm. we can distinguish proximate up close motives and distal motives so you know for an awful lot of things the reason we do it is it feels good (laughs) or at some Mm -hmm. level i thought that would be a good idea and and those are true uh but can they can be true simultaneously as other other more distal motives can be you can go to school to, say, show off, in addition to going to school because it feels good, it could feel good to show off. Before we moved on, I wanted to quickly touch, because uh, I just have this near the top in my notes, I think one of my favorite things that you pointed out in this, and I don't remember if it was 
in the book or in or just in the blog posts but uh the observation that laughter is because for a long time people have been saying why the hell do humans laugh that's in the book that's a, that was one oh, of my favorite chapters yes and and your your insight was that laughter is mainly to signal that this is playtime and we don't have to take things like deadly seriously right now right just to be clear very few things in the book are original okay. uh, in the sense that nobody's ever said it before uh, what we're trying to do in this book is pull a lot of things together and to make an overall point. And that's actually re- related to the theme Bayesian of your uh, blog post title, I mean, your mm-hmm. podcast title. That is, I think there's a Bayesian argument for why it would make sense to simultaneously argue for a bunch of these all together in one book. And, and that is because when you see them all together in one book, it helps people to to get how big of a deal it is? Right. Your prior for each one is low. And so for each one, if you just read my colleague Brian Kaplan's book on the case uh, against education, uh, your prior that education is mainly about showing off is probably pretty low. Mm-hmm. And so he'll present a lot of evidence, and, and that will lean in that direction. But you still might be wondering, well, yeah, that's all kind of plausible, but my prior is so low, I'm not sure I can still really believe this. And, and that'll be true for each of these areas that we have. Uh, however, your prior is correlated. <laughs> Your prior thinks that if this is true about a lot of these eras, areas, it's going to be more likely to be true about the others. And so if I can show you evidence in many areas at once, then that correlated prior means uh, the prior is not weighing so much against them. Yeah. And so you can believe all of them together in a way that you can't believe any one. In, in that sense, it was smart to put the, I think, the more charged topics near the end of the book like the last four chapters uh, the harder to believe ones medicine religion politics right right um i want to first set you up and seeing there's this pattern that's plausible that we are often unaware of our motives uh, on very familiar topics and topics where you don't really have a strong emotional investment right body language laughter yeah i thought that was a very good decision to do it that way and it because i we can we can touch on the healthcare one later on but no let's um, touch on the healthcare one now well i wanted to get to i guess like a more basic question about the book as a whole is um, so we've talked about maybe a bit what the elephant in the brain is, but we didn't talk about why we have elephants in our brains. And I wondered if you wanted to dive into that a little bit. Right. So we devote the first third of the book to just general theory, making it plausible that we would often be unaware of our motives. And perhaps that was excessive. Maybe we should have just devoted a quarter or even less of the book to that. But uh, we, we do a lot of tutorial about uh, what we know about the evolution of humans to try to make it believable that uh, this wouldn't be a crazy thing to have happen. And so we say that humans are competitive and they have uh, complicated social groups and that humans compared to other primates have norms and enforce them with language and weapons, which are uniquely human. And once we have social norms, many of these norms are expressed in terms of intentions. So if I hit you accidentally, that's okay. If I hit you on purpose, that's not. And because we have these norms expressed in terms of intentions and we are really focused on managing these norms in our social interactions, basically All the time, whenever we're doing, in the back of our minds, we're asking ourselves, um, if someone were to challenge me on this thing I'm doing, what could I say my motives were? And we're trying to make sure we have as nice and pro-social and, you know, uh, norm-following a story about the motives we had. And this is so important that we've just got this going in the back of our minds all the time. Of course, we're also looking out for our rivals and wondering if we could accuse them of violating some norm via some behavior they had. We're, we're, we're also have a part of our mind looking out for that, but we're even more focused on defending ourselves. And this part of our mind that's focused on defending ourselves, plausibly, that is the conscious part of our mind. That is 
our consciousness is mainly there and are able to help us explain ourselves to other people. And so the function of this thing isn't to have an accurate representation of our motives. It needs to be accurate enough to be believable to other people, given what they know. But it's like the press secretary for the president, um, who isn't actually told the major reasons for most of what the president does. Nevertheless, they're asked to explain it, and they usually come up with plausible arguments that make the president look good. That's what your conscious mind is. And so that's the key reason why you might not actually know your motives. I've heard it argued a few times that this is the primary purpose of consciousness is to be a uh, like a PR department to your body. Do you do you feel that's, that is possible? I think that's quite plausible. That is uh, what your consciousness mainly does is it creates this integrated story of what you've been doing and why. Mm-hmm. And th- that's useful when you think back on your history. Why did I do something? But it's mostly useful when you tell other people what you've been doing and why. And that's especially useful when other people might challenge you about what you've been doing and why. I think I related this in a previous episode, but there was this uh, hermit that was living around a lake uh, who basically cut himself off from humanity for, I think, over a decade. And once they interviewed him again, he said, yeah, after, after a couple of years, I kind of lost the sense of self anymore. I was just sort of surviving and doing my thing and not thinking as very much as a human does because with no other people around to have a social milieu, you don't really need a self anymore. Which which makes me wonder, do you think animals without any sort of social uh, social environment have – just they would have to have a distinctly different sort of consciousness if they have one at all, right? right. I mean the, the word self and even consciousness have so many associations. I'm reluctant to use them. I, usually in such contexts, I just like to check, trick – excuse me, pick more concrete terms where about which there's less ambiguity. So okay. I might just say most animals – uh, don't have much of a story that they tell themselves about what they did today and why. Okay. And nor do they, you know, have much of a way to tell a story about what they might do tomorrow to themselves yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and why. And that presumably also makes it harder for them to make long-term plans. Uh, a side effect of our ability to tell these stories of what we might do is the ability to consider multiple possibilities and to make long-term plans. And and as you know, one of the things humans like to, you know, celebrate about their distinction from animals is we are more able to make long-term plans and to give abstract reasons for things. And plausibly, this is a side effect of the fact that we need to to make up excuses and defend ourselves from accusations about what we've been doing. So it's kind of a good thing that we had to develop this hypocrisy center because it's what lets us plan for the future and make technology and things. Well, humans are an amazing species who have amazing capacities compared to other animals. And, uh, To the extent that these social capacities that we started with were the key thing that got us going, then, yeah, you have to give them credit for almost everything. Doesn't mean they're necessarily good to preserve, though. Uh, Depends on how entangled they are, basically, with all the other things that are good. And then to answer that, we have to get in more detail into their structure and implementation. It's interesting to me, and this is one of the the sort of paradoxes explored in the book, that, you know, we have our surface reasons that we give for, you know, why did you... Um, take that job over this job, you know, oh, well, you know, I feel like it'd make me happier when really it's like it's more prestigious or something um, or it pays better, but that sounds tacky to say that. Mm-hmm. And so like we're aware in some cases that we're covering up these kind of selfish sounding motives. And we're also aware that when other people are talking about their stuff, that they're probably doing the exact same thing. Um, and yet like it's like this almost seems like a house of cards and yet it's just everybody like you know like in the book not looking at the elephant right 
So I, to me, that's just a really, uh, I can't think of a good word for it. Confusing not, isn't the right word, but that's, that's a really fun phenomenon and problem to look at. Well, people are certainly aware that sometimes people lie, and there are sometimes they lie. And they're aware that sometimes people get into a mode where they're so, you know, easily telling the lies with such grace and fluidity that they forget it's a lie. And uh, they're aware that happens to other people and themselves. And But they tend to assume that uh, sort of they know most of the examples of this, that they, they've got it. Uh, they might lie to a date about uh, the, you know, how prestige of their job, or uh, lie to a policeman about how fast they were going. They're, they're aware of some lies, and they they know that people lie, but they assume that uh, the lies they're aware of and the ones they can see in other people are pretty much it. And so, even we economists are, are famous for being somewhat cynical. I think we're just not remotely cynical enough. <laughs> Uh, when it comes to actually looking at uh, the motives for a lot of common behaviors. Uh, even we will give people the benefit of the doubt in a way we just weren't realizing. I, I've i seen two different takes on this, and I wanted to get your opinion on like both which one you think is more accurate and which one you like more. Um, the there's the Yudkowskian take where he wrote a short fanfic Lord of the Rings where the one ring lets you gives you the ability to see people's true motivations and it's it's kind of wonderful where um who was the 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 ranger guy Aragorn Aragorn yeah where uh he sees that Aragorn was unable to compete in the human lands uh at the highest levels so he went to the elf lands where he's like an outsider and his weird status means that he doesn't have to compete on the same levels anymore and just as as frodo looked around the 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 circle of companions at every single person it was just these base you know get propagate your genes sort of motivations to everything and it was depressing as hell and then uh zvi who i believe i saw on your blog that you read his review and responded to it in part uh, I, I read the entirety of his review of your book as well, and he seems to say that even though X is mostly not about getting Y, you still get some Y, and everyone has to pretend that it's about Y and lie about it, and this makes like a really intricate dance. It's like a game where we keep trying to pull one over on each other, and we get some Y out of it in the process, and in the meantime, it's a lot of fun to play these status games, and like... To me, that sounded like the most nihilistic and depressing thing ever. It's just basically admitting all we do with our lives is play these stupid, pointless, wasteful games because we think it's fun. Um, But he seemed to be really into it. He's like, it's great that humans can keep themselves occupied like this after we've solved most of the world's problems. Can I I give a specific example maybe to build on for that phenomenon? Like the... I had a few friends at the end of the year last year put their, their charitable donations on a Facebook status. Mm-hmm. And they said, this year, I donated this much to this charity, this much to that charity, etc. And so, like, one externality of them gaining prestige among their peers by saying, look, I'm a charity giver, look at me, is also, like, they actually gave to charity. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people might actually lie about it and try and, you know, fake the signal, but assuming that they didn't, like, like, like Svi said, it could be, you know, the, the downside is, like, or I guess not the downside, the fallout of you getting the, the social prestige of, of being a good person is that other people are actually helped. And sure. now they will want to get that prestige as well right. and also do that possibly. Right. Uh, honestly, I think what's mostly going on here is um, you're less 
personally offended by these facts than that you know that people expect that a good person would be offended. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So it's signaling all the way down. So uh, you you don't feel very comfortable with merely just accepting this and going on. You, You feel like you should and are obligated to show some degree of disappointment and concern. And, of course, you're doing a laudable job, both of you. (laughs) (laughs) But the obvious fact is that humans have an enormous ability to adapt to circumstances. Uh, People have lived in an enormous range of environments in the past, uh, lots of different kinds of food, cold, hot, you know, very slow worlds. Uh, People have been low status, high status. And for the most part, they just adapt to that. And it doesn't really need to affect their daily mood. Now, if you've got constant physical pain, fine, that'll bring you down a bit. Uh, But otherwise, um, you know, think of the worlds that people have lived in the distant past and have been mostly happy. They lived in pretty deep poverty. They had basically the same job for all their life that their parents and grandparents and all the way back in memory had. They hardly saw very much of the world. They only saw a few hundred miles around where they lived. And yet they were mostly roughly in as good a mood as you. Mm. Uh, because that was the world they knew. So I'm really confident that once you get used to this picture of humanity, you'll be fine with it. You'll be okay. (laughs) But you just feel an obligation to object, which is uh, also fine. Uh, Another way to say this is to say, look, uh, yes, humans are not what they pretend to be. They they are not the, the angels they like to pretend. But if we set aside this angel thing, which never made much sense if you think about it, If you look at what they actually are compared to all the other animals on the planet or even all the other creatures that you could imagine that would actually make sense, they're pretty impressive. They're Mm. pretty interesting. You could be okay living with them and being one of them. That's not such a dispiriting thing. Uh, Most of these hidden motives that we have are perfectly reasonable motives to have. They aren't the motive of angels, but they're reasonable motives for the kind of creatures that we are to have. Some of the motives are all about showing how loyal we are and how much we care about our allies and and friends and associates. At some level, they are laudable motives. Uh, They're just not quite as high motives as the wee ones our conscious mind uh, likes to make up and pretend. But really, uh, I think it's not that much of trouble to get used to this uh, once you've thought about it for a while. And that's that's where I'm at, too, like with the, the... You know, charity example on Facebook is, you know, they they might share it to get you know their friends to donate or something too. But it's not like a bad thing to want to tell your friends I'm a good person. Here's proof. Um, just like you know the example of uh, you know bringing home cooked meals to sick people um, or to your sick friends and family. Uh, you know, rather than swing by the store on your way to their house, you you spend the extra time to make it. And you know that 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 shows the extra. Uh, sacrifice yeah. and how much you actually really care, or it's supposed to, you know, say Look, that sort of thing. If, if you're ever in the hospital and some people come to visit you in the hospital, if you think about it, you will know they felt a bit of an obligation Yeah, mm-hmm. that they were your friends and associates and you were in the hospital and they needed to show that, uh, you know, they cared. They were afraid in part of how uncaring they would seem if they didn't come. And you can tell they're, they're there to, with you, but they're kind of looking at their watch and they want to get going <laughs> on to their next thing. But you will still feel good that they came. You will know that they did actually signal that they care and that they do care. And that will be a deep comfort to you. I remember seeing a few criticisms of people saying that uh, that the fact that these are 
that you never address whether these are uh, conscious or you don't go into right. deep, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, dive right. into whether these are conscious motivations or not. And that should make a hell of a lot of difference. And you expressed some annoyance at that. <laughs> well, um, we have one book to, here to write, and we wanted to make it accessible. So it had limited uh, coverage. Our main priority was to make clear this idea that there are these two different levels. There's the usual level of the motives we attribute to ourselves in the most public of contexts, say in a public politician speech or graduation ceremony. And then if we look at the details of behavior, there's the motives that would most explain the details that would just make sense of most of what we're actually doing. And in order to convince you of this, it was necessary not only to explain in theory, why, why that should be plausible, but to go through 10 different areas all in the same book uh, and to summarize the key evidence in each area that we have these other motives. So that's quite a lot to fit in one book. Yeah. Now, uh, if we are right in this about this book, uh, hopefully if this could open a whole new area of exploration of human behavior, maybe dozens more books could be writ written about this. That would be great. We, we would love that. But we have to start somewhere, and we have to start with our main thesis and a book that says that main thesis. So we can't let ourselves get too distracted in this first book from the main thesis and just focusing on the points that will support the main thesis. Uh, so before that, we, we had to basically say there are these two levels, and um, there's a difference. And there's, of course, a whole continuum in between, and, and we didn't want to get too particular about identifying each context and thing on each level in between. So clearly there's a difference between what we say in public and what we say in private. There's a difference between uh, if we're a professional and we're an amateur on the topic. Uh, there's a difference between uh, what we are comfortable being aware for ourselves or what we're only aware in certain situations when we're forced to be aware versus things we are completely unaware. There's a difference between whether these behaviors are adaptive in a modern world or in which context they're adaptive. And all that complexity is all interesting and important, but it's not needed to make our main point, which is just that there's this big difference between the thing we most say and that most social science and policy analysis is based on and whatever it is, the thing that explains our behavior. And uh, we focused on making sure we made that key point. And from the point of view of that key point, it's not clear how much it matters exactly that it's conscious or not, or it's the sort of thing we say in public or not. Uh, the key thing is there's, <laughs> there's the difference. So if we say we go to school to learn the material, and then uh, the explanation for our actual behavior is better accounted for by... Um, uh, showing off and acculturation, then sometimes some people are aware of this, more or less, sometimes less. It could depend on your age, could depend on whether you're professional, could depend on whether you're talking in public or in private. But tell me, why does that matter so much from the point of view of just making the point that there's that difference? The, the first thing to argue is that there's a difference. And, and if we can't make that point, all the rest is irrelevant. That makes sense to me. Uh, I I didn't find it super I'm with you. I don't. I don't find it super relevant as to whether or not these are things that people are consciously aware of or not. We really want to find out what the actual motivations are, irrespective of whether or not people are saying them quietly in their heads or not. Right? It seems to really matter to a lot of people. They get like offended that you would imply that right. this is something people would consciously so, know. So I, I have a theory for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Again, which is that um, in our tradition of motives, we give a primacy to conscious motives in our social norms. So. Uh, we don't actually tend to have such strong norms against people doing things for reasons they're not conscious of. Okay. And our, our law embodies that, and a lot of our social, so, social practice embodies that. 
And because of that, I think people fully well know that they will see that our book is an accusation, basically that they have been lying about their motives. Mm. And they want to defend themselves immediately, and that's their first priority against this accusation. And so the straightforward defense is, I wasn't aware of this. Yeah. And it seems correct to them that if they can defend that claim, okay, this may be my motive, but I wasn't aware of it. I was unconscious or it was set up by society. Uh, you know, society channeled me down these paths and I wasn't even aware of, of why I was being channeled this way. Uh, then they are innocent yeah. of the accusation of the norm violation. And they're and more interested in defending themselves against that accusation than against then they are in this topic of what is the actual motivation for human behavior. And that's exactly what our theory would predict. Right. And in I, fact, I can, most I can of us how... are not actually that interested in explaining human behavior in general compared to defending ourselves personally against accusations and norm violations. Yeah. And I can see how you would get annoyed by that because you don't really care about that that much. You're, you're, that is completely off topic from your book, aside from the fact that it's basically what you would expect. <laughs> it's like they, they didn't right. even read the book and get the point of it. Right now, you know, perhaps if we were clever, we, we would have said something about that earlier or later in the book. But, uh, <laughs> but that would also be picking a fight with our reader. We don't want to do that, really. Yeah. You should have put it as an appendix. Pick a fight with the lead reader as he's leaving. <laughs> I didn't feel personally attacked until chapter 14, so I think you did a good job. Oh, what was uh, chapter 14? The medicine one. Uh-huh. Um, which I, I think... Well, I think individuals vary in what areas of life they find most sacred or precious. Right. Mm. So, and I, so if school has been the thing in your life, you are a school teacher, you love school, then our chapter on school might be the thing that bothers you. And if you're really into religion, then our chapter on religion will be the one that you just can't quite swallow. I put uh, that in my notes here, too. <laughs> um, and I was sort of joking. I, I felt like I, I don't I don't I don't uh, I didn't I was being hyperbolic when I said I felt personally attacked. But it's the first one that I actually like I felt I imagine how people feel reading many of these uh, feeling is that like. I'm reading this very compelling argument. I'm like, no way, man. I'm doing this because I love my grandma. Like, so it's it's tough. But I mean, like the education one I was on board with, and that, that was the chapter previous to that. And uh, I, I'm i looking forward to talking about, the, talking about that with my aunt, who's a school teacher. And not like mm. in an accusatory way. I'm curious how much of this she'll agree with. Um, but I mean, like I said, you started off with like body language, laughter, things that people, I think, find more enlightening and, and interesting than offensive, right? It's a good way to write a book. So... I guess if you if we're for touching on the medicine one, I wanted to dive into that a bit. Not that like I am going to challenge and say you know, hey, I think this is wrong. I guess You're welcome just, to, of course. <laughs> well, I think I'm I because I think it's not. <laughs> I think is the reason, but I think people will say. Uh, I think that's probably one of the ones that uh, you get the most kickback on, except for maybe the religion chapter from yeah. religious I mean, people. Or since something. you mentioned it to our listeners and they haven't read the book, they will be doubting. M- most listeners right now are thinking, "I haven't bought this medicine claim. What are these these you know podcast people buying this claim so easily from this huckster?" Exactly. So, so, so we got we got to address go it just so that they will feel. <laughs> no, I totally agree. A little more addressed. Um, so I think like well, the, let's quickly say what the, the claim is about the medicine then. Right. So I think the central claim would be that it's, it's largely about showing how much you care and showing to other people how much you care about, you know, your family members or something. That's why you, you get expensive treatments that are obvious for your family members, as opposed to like, you know, prescribing bed rest and soup, uh, even though it might work just as well as $60 worth of medication, um, looks like you care less. And so people are inclined to go for the expensive option, even though the benefits from it don't really pan out for that cost. Is that a fair sum- summary? It's half of it. The other half is wanting to let other people show they care for you, uh, right. liking that. Uh, so an analogy here is a Valentine's chocolate. So 
as you know, on Valentine's, there's a tradition of showing someone you love that you love them by buying them chocolate. Now, when you ask yourself, um, what chocolate should I buy them and how much, you don't primarily say, uh, how hungry are they? (laughs) Or what brand do I privately think they will enjoy the best? Uh, Right. You don't grab them a Hershey's bar at the checkout line at the the grocery store. You you ask, how much do I need to spend so that I won't seem to be uncaring or I will seem to care more than people who don't care as much as I do? You will also ask, what brand or style of chocolate will people tend to give me credit for having been generous on? And if you don't have someone to buy you chocolate on Valentine's and you don't want everybody to know that, you might buy yourself some chocolate and leave it on the desk at the office. (laughs) (laughs) Because you'd like to have the appearance of being cared for like everybody else. Right. So everyone can see that you're cared for, for sure. Um, Exactly. I think the kickback in medicine. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. So I think, and I'm sure that you're, I, and it sucks because I read this, I, I wanted to skip to those chapters, but I was also really enjoying reading the whole book in order. So I almost finished the education chapter before we started here, or excuse me, almost finished the medicine chapter before we started here. So maybe you address these in the second half of that chapter, but the responses to things like, uh, you know, it's like end of life care. Um, oh God. Well, well, I mean, it's important. And like my, so my, my, uh, my girlfriend was a geriatric social worker for five years and when I was, you know, reading this to her and showing her this stuff, she's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, nothing, you know, it, it doesn't do anything but keep them alive longer. And they, for the most part, don't even want that. That's why they sign DNRs. That's why they, uh, you know, the, the patient themselves rarely are enthusiastic about this treatment, but the family is. Right. So professionals will mostly know this stuff. I'm not saying much that isn't well known to professionals, at least when we're talking about the details of that medicine has a relatively low low effectiveness, Uh, more medicine is only a very weak correlation with more health, Uh, that we're especially interested in expensive, dramatic treatments uh, during crises rather than ordinary, everyday, cheap, uh, simple things we can do to improve our health, Uh, that we're not very interested in uh, information about the quality of medical treatments when they're given privately. Uh, These are all things uh, relatively well-known. However, even professionals will often say, well, yes, it's not very effective, but health is so important that even the small uh, you couldn't possibly do without. Uh, But, of course, that ignores the fact that we we have a lot of other much bigger ways to influence health that we show very little interest in. Like, uh, are you talking about exercise and... Yeah, exercise, status, air quality, sleep, diet. God, sleep is a big one, and just people. A lot of people seem to be proud of how little sleep they they get. Well, they get to signal how hard workers they are and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think like the I think the reaction people feel, especially it's something about uh, you know like paying for a medical treatment for a family member or something. Um, you know, like the reason that I might uh, pay to put my grandmother in a really nice uh, um, care facility or something, as opposed to not worrying about it, is like the real felt reason, I guess this is the one where I felt it the most is that like, you know, the real felt reasons that I have don't, I'm, I'm like, they don't line up with the, uh, the explanations for, for, from the signaling perspective. And yet I accept them, but like they, they, they seem like challenged. So like, you know, it's not, even if you want, uh, are willing to bite the bullet and say, yes, I understand that part of the reason I'm doing this is to signal. But the other reason that seems way salient is that, no, I actually care and I want this to work. And so uh, I guess, is there, I imagine uh, that there's some standard conversation about this 
line of, of feedback, right? Well, of course. Um, now, you're very aware that you care. Um, you, you might be less aware that that means you are mainly focused on making this mechanically work. Those are two separate claims. Uh, you, you know very much that you care about this person and that you want them to know that you care about them. And you want the world to know and yourself to know that you care about them. Uh, but the question is the, the causal connection between what you're doing and the effects that will show everybody that you care about them. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, uh, your mind is uh, set up in order to uh, give you <laughs> this good excuse, this, this good story. Um, you know, people whose conscious plan is, I'm going to do this because that's what everybody will look at and I want them it to seem like I care, those aren't the people we like <laughs> and respect, right? Right. So that looks way too mercenary and, and uh, manipulative for it to be the sort of motive we are going to expect. So your mind can't stick that in your head and tell you that's what you think and feel because that's just a not, not really an option. For sure. And I think that like if people were uh, really interested in actually delivering the care, they, you wouldn't get these weird paradoxical finding, or I guess not paradoxical if you, only if you thought that the real motivation was that they cared, but like they, they aren't interested in learning about like success rates for treatments mm -hmm. or, you know, even like compare, like cross shopping between hospitals or something, which to me blew my mind. I luckily, I haven't really ever been in serious medical uh, condition where I needed, you know, to compare my, my expected life outcome based off of treatments but if I was, I would like to think that I would definitely, you know, have the wherewithal to, like, shop around for the best option, right? You'd like to think so. <laughs> you, well, hopefully. Your, your press secretary tells you that uh, that would be the sort of thing you'd like to think and that you will presume that you will think it. But well, now that I've come public, maybe I can, my press secretary will have no plausible deniability. So yeah. I can actually take care of myself. <laughs> I liked uh, in his review, Zvi had sort of a awesome signaling judo technique for this. He said what we should do, or I don't know if he said should, but uh, it, it, one technique to counteract this would be to start pointing out some of the awful horror stories about end-of-life care and how bad they are and how it just prolongs suffering. And we could start saying, how can we care so little as to allow this and not just allow it, but actively foist it upon people? If we really cared, we would allow them to go out with dignity and grace and not spend all this money making their last few months miserable. Right. Well, so the first priority of our book is to make an intellectual argument for the existence of these motives so that people who specialize in this sort of topic might be persuaded and talk among themselves. Mm. Uh, I don't immediately have the ambition... <laughs> of changing the equilibrium among ordinary people. That, that seems way too hard uh, as a starting point. Uh, for the starting point, I'm going to presume that um, people are in an equilibrium where their behavior roughly makes sense in terms of their personal incentives, and that this is true for most everybody. And so telling them how to deviate from their current behavior is going to hurt them on the most part. <laughs> and even making them aware of this, which might tempt them to change their behavior, is probably on average going to hurt them. That's my default assumption about the state of the world. It's an equilibrium. It roughly fits. But not everybody's average. Not everybody's the user situation. Uh, and in particular, some of us are focused in our lives as a professional, as a specialist in analyzing human behavior, studying social institutions and thinking about reforms. Those people seem to be the first candidate for the people who should know this stuff. 
Uh, this is right up their alley, and if they don't know this stuff, they will just get their key job wrong. And uh, they could plausibly gain social credentials and credibility by being the sort of person who's hard-nosed enough to face this and say it, even when uh, that might not go over well in their private lives. But among other professionals, they could still say this to each other. I also expect there'll be a, a somewhat niche demand for the um, young person like um, Catcher in the Rye hmm. who um, sees the world around them and says, people have been bullshitting me. <laughs> they're, they're not telling me what's really going on. Where, where can I find out what's really going on? Well, I'm happy that now there's a book you could hand them. <laughs> and you could say, I'm not sure you really want to know, but... Uh. You've been asking, you've been pestering me, so here you go. Uh, and there may be such people who, for whom, you know, the fact that the world looks so hypocritical and, and doesn't make sense in so many ways is so troubling that they decided that they want, really want to know. Yeah. And warts and all, they want to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but I'm not presuming that I know how to change the equilibrium of the rest of the world. I, I think that we social scientists and specialists now that we are armed with this understanding, can start that process of figuring out how to do that. And it's not obvious we can't find solutions, but they certainly shouldn't be easy to find and implement. <laughs> I mean, this is a whole big, complicated world, and it's in a strong, complicated equilibrium. So first priority should be to figure out what's actually going on before we try to figure out how to improve it. Can I ask you um, to speculate a little in a, I guess, related topic? Um I don't know. Have you have you seen Scott Alexander's recent mistake theory versus conflict theory uh, proposition? Well, as usual with Scott, I, I I read a bit of the way through the post. Okay, <laughs> he writes really a long post. Yes, uh, and he's very good and insightful. But but he, he could use an editor. Yeah, it, uh, it, but sure. It yeah. sounds it sounds very much like you are uh, more along the lines of a mistake theory person, where there is a system that is flawed and we can rationally address this and fix it together if we just, you know, put our minds to it. And I worry, uh, especially recently, that a lot of politics is takes the conflict theory view of things where there's an enemy and we must fight them. And it seems that unfortunately, at least in my opinion, in a democracy, conflict theorists win. Uh, they, they take so, over politics because the, you can I motivate. mean, honestly, it's... It, they are the same thing, with, but the only variation is the assumption of the scope at which you are hoping to coordinate. Mm -hmm. um, all of social analysis uh, is done with respect to some scope of a community that you're making the policy recommendations to. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you are about to go in a job interview, I can use everything I know to advise you about what to do in the job interview. That's a very personal local advice. We're going to advise you. I want, you know, you want to win, marry the heart of this person to marry them. What should you do? And I could just advise you directly and personally. And, and then in a sense, that's conflict because I'm, if there's a conflict between you and these other people, I'm not in this moment trying to encompass that conflict and resolve those conflicts. I am, I'm advising one person in their actions. Mm -hmm. But if you come to me as a couple, then I could, ask, I could start to think about, well, what could you do as a couple together and coordinate to, to better achieve both of your ends? Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if you come to me as a company and you say, how could we reorganize this company to be better? Now I could encompass the interests of this entire company and mm -hmm. say, try to fix the mistakes of this company rather than in the other mode. Uh, it's a conflict mode where you are trying to get a job there and I'm just trying to help you. And in that mode, I might advise you to do things that like hurt them that help you, Right. And it's all just about the scope of the community you're advising. 
And of course, we almost never advise the entire world. Mm -hmm. The entire world coordinates so rarely that uh, there is no world to advise. And so uh, we, we can still think about what would we do if we advise the world. And that's a great first cut to think about what to offer other people. But uh, again, uh, when you have a particular policy audience, that sets the scope for your analysis. You analyze the policy from the point of view of that decision maker and the scope they encompass. So within the scope of that decision maker, you can be a mistake person who's looking for ways to win-win deals for all of them to gain. With respect to their outsiders, then you're a conflict person. You're helping them win in that conflict with outsiders. Okay. And you don't consider like the the overwhelming mass of the population which is more concerned with signaling than with actually addressing these issues to be in conflict with the policy experts? Well, again, uh, that's part of the challenge of policy analysis. So um, in the conclusion of the book, uh, we say that traditionally policy analysts have just tried to solve the problem of how to give people more of the things they say they want and that's been hard, but we faced the puzzle of why they don't seem interested when we do seem to be able to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Now we face the problem of finding reforms to existing institutions such that people can continue to pretend to be pursuing the ends they've always pretended to pursue, mm-hmm. but that they can actually get more of the things they actually want. Okay. Uh, that's a harder design problem. It has more constraints. Yeah. And of course, when we sell it to people, we can't tell them (laughs) explicitly about this second feature. (laughs) Nevertheless, there's still more hope that people could be more interested in our reforms if we actually can find solutions to this problem. Do you you have any hope that maybe someday people will be able just to admit what things are really about and not have to play these signaling games? And would you want that? I have hope that policy specialists and experts could admit it. Okay. (laughs) And I have some hope in a weaker sense that the larger world will admit to a few pieces, but you know, honestly that's relatively weak. Uh, I mean, but overall the world is already, you know, admitted to more things today than they admitted to thousands of years ago. For example, there were many polite social fictions from thousands of years ago that we are more willing to uh, contradict today because we have developed more common knowledge that we all see through it. I used to have a very special place in my heart for, well, I used to just be a, a straight up radical transparency proponent and it still like holds some, a lot of uh, attraction to me, but this seems like one of those reasons why we could never have that, that policy people would have to meet behind closed doors to not let others know that they're focusing on the actual issue rather than on the signaling that they have to present to the everyone else. If you thought that, say, human nature in a forager life was the kind you liked, and we've been socialized to become capitalists, and in the capitalist world we do ugly, distasteful things like, you know, sell people crap they don't need and lie to people, etc., then you might have some hope that we could carve out a new training environment where we would stop training people and socializing these people in these destructive ways and be more like they were back in this forager world. Mm -hmm. That would be a plausible hope. But once you see that you're talking about features of human nature that have gone back for a million or two million years, that are not some recent cultural change, but they're just 
at the core of human nature, then you realize it's just going to be really hard to fundamentally change these things. You might change how they're expressed and the directions, and that could be a lot of big wins. But this is humans, and this is what they are. And for a while, this is what they will stay. And I think part of that, too, is that we didn't evolve elements in our brains for no reason. And so... I, I think this is something that's brought up in the beginning of the book, but I didn't, if it's, maybe it's finished in the conclusion that I haven't reached yet or something, but the question of like whether or not like owning up to our own ugly motives puts us at a competitive disadvantage with our community of signalers, um, you know, being, being the one in 50 people that acknowledge the elephant in the brain, um, given that we all evolved to ignore it, does that put us at a disadvantage? Again, probably does in ordinary environments with ordinary people, but consider being part of a specialty environment with specialists. So, uh, for example, the effective altruism community is a community that prides itself on uh, talking about charity in more explicit terms about its effectiveness, uh, even knowing that for most people that's not what charity is about and that for most people their sort of me- their mercenary mechanical calculation is a bit off-putting and not in- as endearing <laughs> as they might like in somebody else's charity behavior. So if you can create specialist communities that have more of a knowledge uh, shared about these uh, elephants in the brain, these hidden motives, then within those communities, it can be more okay to talk about it. But you think there always have to be some level of secrecy between like specialists and the general public? Well, again, there are some things today that we just don't pretend in the same way people did thousands of years ago. Yeah. So, uh, thousands of years ago, basically everybody had to pretend there were gods <laughs> and that the, you know, frequent rituals we all did were to appease the gods and that uh, the gods might be pleased if we did the rituals, mm. etc. Basically, everybody had to say that. Even and most if- intellectuals kind of knew otherwise. That's at least one of the standard themes in uh, the uh, literature of esoteric academics. But they all knew that in public, you better go along with the standard story. Mm. Even and of you, course, yeah, and, the, and you had to go to the standard story about those other people over there being distrustworthy outsiders and, and us being the, the trustworthy moral insiders. I mean, that was a story you just always had to say, and everybody kind of knew that. And now today, uh, those things have broken down. <laughs> it's less obvious that you always have to say those things today for everybody to think that you're a reasonable person. You mentioned that uh, effective altruism seems like a a good effort to get back to the root of what charity is and less about signaling. Do you, how long do you think it'll remain that way before it also gets caught up in signaling games? Well, it's already a new signaling game, but it could just be a little bit better of one. Okay. (laughs) I mean, within the community, people are competing to show off how uh, high quality they are with respect to the norms of the community. Mm -hmm. And that already creates some distortions, but you could still argue it's a better set of distortions than the usual game. You're not going to stop people from signaling. What you can at best hope to do is redirect their signals in a more useful direction. Right. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, actually, it brings up this issue. uh, People have asked, you know, how could we stop signaling? And uh, or how could we have better signals? Well, you know, what would be the way the world could change to do that? And honestly, I think we're actually putting most of our effort most of the time into signaling. So there's not really much extra effort to put in that that we could put in, or in, or not much process prospect of putting in less. So I think it's more about redirecting. And uh, so it's less about the quantity and more about what kind of signals we said. 
And I think it's especially about how smart the audience we're trying to impress is. So if you think about medicine, again, what we're trying to do is show what we care. And the way we show that we care is by, by pushing people to get or giving people medicine that on the surface would seem to be effective. And people give us credit for that caring as long as the usual audience would say that that's effective. And the same in charity. We, we get credit for being generous in charity as long as the usual audience would look at whatever charity we're doing and say that would be a reasonable thing to do. And it's because these audiences are ignorant that these signals can be effective. Uh, same way in politics. We, we get credit for being a politically caring person, for pushing for a policy that other people in our world would believe is an effective policy. It doesn't, the pol policy we push in politics doesn't have to actually work. Mm. We might be pushing for tariffs or minimum wages or other uh, rent control. And these might not actually help. They might hurt. But as long as the people that around us that we're trying to impress think they help, then that's all it takes for us to get credit for being a caring person. So the key problem in, in this sense is that the audience we're trying to impress is usually so poorly informed about the connection between behaviors and, and effects. If only this audience could be better informed. And of course, in some ways, as the world gets smarter and more knowledgeable and people learn more things at earlier ages, we all just know more about more things. And that's better for this point of view. And so this is a reason why there's an externality from the median person just knowing more about how the world works. It might be a reason why it would be better if we all were eager to impress elites rather than the median person. Mm. Uh, because the elites then might be better informed. And then so if, if, if instead of trying to impress, you know, our high school friends, we were trying to impress our professor. Uh, and who knew more, say, about these things than then we might all try harder to do the things that were impressive to people who knew more. Well, as, as a bit of a teacher's pet my whole life, I was always eager <laughs> to impress the professor. But that also comes to a problem of access. Like most people don't have the ability to impress their elites because they have no way to show anything to their elites. Like how am I going to impress? I don't right. know. So, so, you know, but we can imagine more institutions wherein elites do evaluate people and hmm. they – I know there's a lot of possibilities for that. And of course, we might imagine making sure these elites are actually better informed about things because this makes it all the more important. What do the elites know? Because yeah. often there are a lot of things, say, about whether minimum wages or rent control works that elites don't know. This is one of the things that, just speaking as, as a writer, one of the things that tries to pushes you towards getting traditionally published rather than self-publishing. The elites are much more likely to notice you if you have a big name publisher putting out your book. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that is a thing I think about a lot. People sometimes ask me, why don't you put this out, the, the novel you wrote? And I'm like, right. no, no, I want to go through the <laughs> long, drawn out, less lucrative official channels because then the authors that I really right. look up to might someday hear about me and want to like talk to me. So a lot of old style you know, costume dramas or stories about hundreds of years ago often have the story of an ordinary person who rises to heights. Mm-hmm. And often the key events in that are some contact between a lower person and a higher person where the lower person impresses the higher person and then the higher person helps that person advance. You're describing all my uh, favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and you could say if you're focused on, you know, the rare occasions where you could really stand out and shine, um, then that's more in this direction. But again, you know, we're just thinking out loud here. 
again, my first priority, as in my previous book, Age of M, is just to lay out the facts of the world and make that clear. Uh, honestly, I think people are way too eager to get into uh, values and um, you know reform analysis before they understand the basics of what's actually going on. Uh, I mean, it's more fun. You feel like you're you know showing off your values and that you care by talking about reform analysis. But still, you know, our book only went over ten areas of life. There are many more than ten areas of life. So there's a lot of possibility for applying our methods to many other areas of life and figuring out what the hidden motives elsewhere is. That seems to me an, an enormous priority and, and potential. We can learn a lot more than we now know, even after writing our book, about why we do a lot of things. We are bumping up against our hour, so we should probably wrap it up. Uh, Stephen, did you have anything you wanted to add or ask about? I was thinking about like a better class of signals and going back to the effective altruism movement, uh, I think one of the things they have been advocating for and I think successfully in, in some places is uh, breaking the taboo against talking about your charitable donations. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, 15 years ago, it might be seen as really tacky to like talk about who you donated to and why. Uh, and so like, you know, my friend's Facebook post that I saw a couple months ago would have come off as like really, you know, smug or, or uh, uh, I don't know, unfavorable. And yet, we, now we can look at it and say, oh, that's great. That's really cool. And the fact that you list your charities lets us help, you know, evaluate, uh, you know, your effectiveness if you care for feedback or something, right? So if they gave 80% of their charity budget to their local animal shelter or something, they they might actually be interested in hearing about why that wasn't the best use of their money. Um, so I, I, I have hope that, you know, at least with some uh, willing... So, I'm sorry, go ahead. We, we know some things about human norms. Uh, there are some human norms that have just been universal in pretty much all human societies. And then there are other norms that are more specific to particular times and places. Um, so the second class of norms that we have more hope to change, uh, you know, in the United States, you're supposed to buy health insurance for people. Well, most people in history didn't buy health insurance. So that's obviously something that could change. Uh, but the norm against bragging is actually pretty universal. Uh, right. it's, everywhere. And so I'm not seeing that one going away. Well, and I, I think I don't see it going away either, but I do see that like, and so this person didn't share like their annual income and what percentage they gave or something, but they were, uh, I, I think this one area where at least some people get support for bragging that way. But the usual way to brag is just to find an excuse why you need to tell people for <laughs> right. some other purpose. So it would be much more robust to just find that for charity, find a reason why people need to tell why there needs to be a place where they tell for some other purpose. Just find that other purpose and make it the excuse. That is some damn good advice. Sounds like a fun problem. Yeah. And that's true for most of our, of course, uh, bragging. We do a lot of bragging, in fact. <laughs> a lot of us do a lot of bragging. Uh, but we usually follow the norm of follow, having an excuse for the bragging. We, we, we still discourage and don't actually do so much direct bragging. Right. So then if we're asked, you know, why did you tell me that? Oh, I was just excited about it. Not because I was interested in raising my status in proximity to you. Right. Um, so I, I guess you mentioned one last thing I wanted to jump on, which was the health insurance thing. Um, and I didn't get to that part in that chat in the chapter yet, but, uh, it, can you talk about health insurance for just a second? And then I had a question about that. The phenomena of why people buy and, uh, the conspicuous carrying there. Sure. Now, um, you know, the standard story about health insurance is that medicine is expensive and uh, you don't always have the money in, you know, in your pocket at the time when you need it. And so you'll need insurance to cover that. And uh, th that's true, of course. Uh, 
Today, we spend a huge fraction of income, especially in the U.S., on health insurance, and uh, we just usually don't have that much cash lying around for uh, big expenses. So, so we do need some sort of process to have cash in reserve to cover health expenses. Um, but if we just did that privately, uh, we might be buying it out of our own pocket, and we really want to show other people that we are caring for them. So we have a strong preference for families to buy health insurance for the whole family, for companies to get health insurance for employees, and for nations uh, and cities even to buy insurance for their citizens. Uh, there's a strong preference all through through the world for socialized medicine, for all of us together to be ensuring that each of us has enough medicine. And um, insurance is this form and excuse. I mean, in fact, an awful lot of medicine isn't insurance at all. It's called insurance. <laughs> But the stuff that deserves the name insurance is really the catastrophic part, the the low chance of a high expense. You know, when, when you buy dental insurance so you can get your teeth cleaned every six months, that's not insurance. <laughs> yeah. It's called insurance, but it's not. It's just a group purchase. It's right. an installment yeah. plan on I, your cleaning. Exactly. I have health insurance, so if I get hit by a car and the driver runs away, I don't have to declare bankruptcy to get better, right? Right. And if you want to reassure your family that that's covered either for their accident to them or to you, then insurance is a way to show them that you care about them and the way they can show up they care about you. But it really also saves money, right? Uh, I, uh, there's a uh, not, long So actually, for that. most of these regular purchases, what you want is a group purchase plan without the commitment to buy everything. <laughs> what you're simultaneously, simultaneously doing is getting a group rate, like you're going to Costco or something. <laughs> Costco membership gives you a right to buy stuff cheaper. But the Costco membership doesn't also mean you have to buy a huge thing of toilet paper every two months. <laughs> Whereas with the medical insurance, you're not only getting the group rate, you're also committing to just getting a lot of it. That's a fair point. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that covered all the things I wanted to ask about, uh, at least for assuming we only had an hour. That's, that covers all the, the stuff on my list. It's been great chatting with you guys. I enjoyed it as I enjoyed talking about my previous book, The Age of M. Yeah. Yes. Did you I want to have add... another book quite as soon as this, guys. So, uh, Did you want to add anything else, uh, either about the book or in general? Uh, the Age of M has a revised paperback edition coming out uh, this June. Oh, excellent. And I've been working on a uh, grant from the uh, Open Philanthropy Foundation on a different uh, AI scenario. That's one of the things I've been doing in the background. Oh, neat. Hopefully I'll have more about that at some point. Okay. Um, just because your audience may be interested to hear those things. Yeah. I'm doing an interview with Sam Harris in a couple weeks. All righty. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. This has been awesome. We're going to put links up to the new book as well as the paperback version of Age of M, should people want that. And uh, we look forward to hearing you on Sam Harris and maybe talking to you again sometime soon. I look forward as well. Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Hey, this is Inyash. I'm recording this after the fact to give a quick behind-the-scenes peek into the podcast. At this point, Robin turned off the recording on his side, so we don't have his audio anymore. We chatted for another minute or two, and then Steven said this. Now that we're not recording, I can tell you honestly that I really enjoyed your book. To which Robin said, oh, come on! Put that in the podcast, then! <laughs> well, but then it sounds like I'm, I'm being, uh, we'll, like, we'll I, like, I, like I'm just, like I'm just saying it just to, just cause, you know, it's, it's too, uh, I, I, I'll sell it when, when we get back to the episode too, but. Um, we should no, maybe I, add this little as the end after the music <laughs> clip. Sometimes we have a few seconds. Well, I thought that it like it was. I mean, I when I was thinking Yash about it, you know, I, I expected it to be kind of uh, like information dense in a way that was hard to get through, and it wasn't. I think I used the word page turner to describe it. It was really fun and like you going did. through. Here, Robin again interjected, saying it would be really great if we would put this in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, and I, I guess I wanted to save it for this part rather than to make it seem like I was ass kissing to our guests. So, oh, um, we're, we're totally totally putting this in because okay. yeah, knowing that it is not a dry <laughs> thing really helps people yeah. that get into it. No, it's a really fun book. Okay, back to the rest of the show. All right, welcome to the next part of the show. I was going to say second half, but this is not going to be nearly close to half um, as long as the other one. So, yes, listener feedback section. Yes, today's uh, um, patron that we wanted to give a special shout out to was uh, Aaron uh, Gertler. Did I say that right? As far as I know, I don't know. Gertler, Gertler. Anyway, thank you so much. We really appreciate your support, and it makes a huge difference to us. Thank you. All of you guys are awesome. Uh, we have gotten some listener feedback from the marriage episode already because Kyle gets to listen to them weeks before the rest of you guys do, uh, since he is doing our sound production on them. And Kyle sent us some feedback before the episode went live, and we are not going to hit some of the other listener feedback we've gotten just yet because it just uh, the episode just aired. But we're going to go ahead and address Kyle's feedback right now because he got it in early. Uh, Kyle, uh, I think it's only fair that he gets dibs. Yeah, totally. (laughs) He does enough work for us. Uh, Kyle says, um, I said in the episode, Inyash said, uh, in a marriage, you'd better get used to doing nice things because you're going to be doing them for a long time. Isn't this something that should be expected of any long-term relationship, regardless of legal status? If I have a 20-year girlfriend, I would expect her to be as nice to me and vice versa as I would my 20-year wife. Can I, can I weigh in on that? Because yeah. I'm anticipating your reply. Okay. That, of course, you should expect your friends to continue to be nice to you and the people that you care about. Um, you know, that's like the equivalent of your parents kicking you out when you turn 18 with no notice or something. What shouldn't happen is that be mandated by the law that your that you're, that you're niceness becomes compulsory lest you go to prison. <laughs> was, that, was that more or less your reply? <laughs> that was basically going to be my reply, yeah. I that it, it's It's just weird that they would... It's a very strong incentive to not um, do nice things like cover someone's uh, car insurance if they can't pay it for a month or whatever else you would do or always uh, get the groceries and the the cost of drinks when you go out if you make more because then that becomes – the lifestyle that your spouse is used to and now you always have to keep paying for grocery and drinks even after you guys are broken up. And uh, it's it, it reminded me of this uh, – do you remember this guy? God, I don't remember his name now. He came to our Less Wrong meetups about a year and a half ago for a few months, and he stopped coming. But he was uh, converting his garage into a place for homeless people to sleep. Yes, the guy from Colorado Springs. Yeah, maybe he succeeded in doing that, and it didn't work out for him. And that's why he hasn't shown up. I'm kidding. People know that he's alive. So Right. And, I mean, he's – that is an amazingly nice thing to do, right? I mean, he's taking in people who are homeless and helping them get back on their feet by giving them free housing and food and, like, encouragement to get out there and change their lives. Somewhere warm and weather-resistant to crash, too, which is, you know, literally a lifesaver. Yeah. No, it's it's fucking awesome. And I am, like, really in awe of him. But also, you know, it, it, then it would be weird if the government were to come in and require him to keep doing that for the next year for anyone that he brought into this garage. Like you have now taken responsibility for this person. He is yours. And I I feel that is that the marriage thing is very similar to that where it's like the quantum entanglement theory of morality. Once you touch it, you have bought it. So, (laughs) so don't touch it. 
And I think, I don't know if we made this explicit in that episode or not, but more or less, maybe 90% of all your objections to marriage revolve around the prospect of a nasty divorce, right? Yeah. So it's not like, because we didn't talk about like the institution or like the fact that, he, you know, it's basically, you know, the father handing off his property to be your problem now. So yeah. like the history of all that nonsense, like that has its own conversation. But you're talking more about like marriage as, as, as it exists now between two consenting adults. A, they don't necessarily know what they're consenting to. And B, it can go very badly for the breadwinner. Um, no, but the other thing is that uh, I really dislike about the divorce is that the main thing it does is give people the tools to hurt each other without giving them much of benefit in, in exchange for that. You don't have to hurt each other. You can have a perfectly amicable separation, amicable separation, but you now with marriage have the ability to hurt each other if one or the other wants to. And that is the main thing that getting into a marriage brought to the relationship without really any benefits to offset that. So yeah, I, I'm all for doing nice things to the people you love. Obviously, I think that is a wonderful thing. And that is one of the reasons I am against marriage, because it disincentivizes doing nice things, lest you be forced to keep doing them forever, or for a period of time commensurate to how long you guys were married, which is not necessarily forever. Was that the full of uh, Kyle's comment? No. Uh, Kyle also said... <clears throat> When uh, Kyle also has recently gone through a divorce, and he said, When my ex and I were getting ready to be married, we thought of the marriage as an additional layer of protection against hard times. When shit would get bad and we didn't like each other and, we, and all we wanted to do was call it quits and move on, the marriage would act as the last line of defense and force us to work all the harder to right the ship. In reality, the marriage did nothing to help us stay together. It only created additional paperwork at the very end. Isn't that something along the lines of the argument that uh, Naveen made? Yeah, Naveen was, yeah, th that was also Naveen's thing, that it's just, it makes it harder to break up, so it will stay together longer even if we don't want to, and, I mean, first of all, I'm against staying together longer if you don't want to in general, but, like, like I have experienced myself, and like Kyle experienced, if you don't like someone to the point where you cannot stand to live with them anymore, having that additional legal burden isn't going to make much of a difference. Yeah, I, I was dubious of that at the time, and I've thought about it since. That like, I mean, and this is coming from this is coming from somebody who's in a very happy and loving, committed relationship. Mm -hmm. That like, if we suddenly stop feeling that way, why would we want to like force ourselves to stay together? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just weird. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to think that neither of us would be, you know, so different that like we would wish unhappiness on each other. And so then, you know, if we had to force an unhappiness on each other via like staying together, like that's nuts. I feel like in this weird, bizarre future where we stopped liking each other, I'd still want her to go be happy with somebody else very easily, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea of, you know, like Naveen talked about, you know, it was like this box that was hard to climb out of or something. And I, that's, you know, but there's nothing in that box that, like, you get to have as a perk that you can't get, you know, very easily other ways. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I'm with you. It seems weird. Like, if you want to stop being friends, you just stop being friends. Like, I mean, maybe a, a dry run example that people have lived with is, like, having a roommate that you suddenly stop liking. And so, like, the lease is kind of like the mini marriage. Mm -hmm. And it's a bitch to get somebody off a lease if they, you know, want to be shitty roommates or whatever. Um, you know, if they stop paying, like, well, you, both your names are on the lease, so you just got to cover the rest unless you want to get, get kicked out too. Um, yeah, 
breaking a lease with somebody who doesn't want to break one is probably kind of like getting a divorce, right? I, uh, well, <laughs> getting a divorce is much worse. Yeah, <laughs> but but, I, but a mini example. Yes, I, yes, I'm exactly. Not, it is a mini I, example of the I same guess thing. What I'm saying is, I'm seeing more parallels the more that I'm thinking about it than uh, obviously, like I said. Yeah, small small yep, version. Totally. All right. Yeah. So if that doesn't sound desirable, then. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. And I, I have already seen a comment or two coming in that pointed out some benefits, but I guess we'll get to those next week after more comments are in and we can really address a lot, lot more of the feedback. Cool. Uh, so continuing uh, with Kyle's uh, email, he says, upon reflection, I would say that the act of getting married created far more problems than were necessary and generated no benefits in return. We never received any of the financial benefits because we filed as married filing separately, which is actually penalized by the IRS, because we could not agree on most joint financial decisions. So, yeah, they didn't even get the few tax benefits that you can't get. Um, I experienced our long-term commitment and marriage, our long-term commitment and marriage as being harmful to our relationship because, for me at least, it allowed me to become complacent. Another way of thinking about it might be, oh, since we're married, everything is secure, so we don't have to try so hard to impress each other. Making any relationship, be it romantic or platonic or whatever, requires work. Sorry, maintaining any relationship. If you don't put in effort, don't be surprised when your partner doesn't either. External forms of commitment, like marriage, can facilitate otherwise loving people to stop working because at the end of the day, you're chained together by a strong external force that requires substantial effort to break. Certainly that chain helped a great many people, but I don't see how a legal contract helps deter breakups any more than other everyday life things would, like leases, joint property ownership, children, and the emotional distress and personal upheaval that um, is caused by a sad ending of a partnership. And yeah, I this was actually a thing that when I was talking to um, my ex's mother, because uh, she had some issues with me wanting to marry her daughter for only five years at a time and then getting divorced which was what we had originally, you know, that was our plan. Uh, did I mention that in the last episode? No, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, we we uh, we set out to have a five-year marriage and then get divorced afterwards and, you know, reconsider and maybe go back into it if we want to, that kind of thing. Which I think was a really cool move. Yeah, yeah, like, we were going to keep doing that every five years. Then that way, rather than saying, yep, we're tied for life and, you know, whether or not we hate each other, it's like, no, let's pre-commit now, not to, like, decide whether or not we want to get divorced because that's, like, super wishy-washy, mm-hmm. but pre-commit to the divorce and then make the new decision to get married again or not. Yeah. That was kind of cool. It would have worked if she didn't start hating me before that five years came up. It was up. a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um... No, but that was one of the things I told her mom as well, that I, I do think that those sorts of things lead people to be like, well, I got you. you you're, you're, you know, you're stuck with me now, so I don't have to put as much effort into staying fit or, I don't know, keep working crazy hours or whatever the fuck it is that you originally did to attract your other person. Because I, I don't want to be that way. And... I worry about it. I, not as much. When you're in a poly relationship, it there is, you know, there's a bit more of the remembering that your your partner has other options and that you want to stay attractive for them. But uh, I just I, I felt that that is that is another thing that marriage kind of makes a relationship slightly lesser. That's an interesting avenue to think about because yeah, like as long as you're interested in like you know impressing and locking down a mate then like you're gonna work hard to stay desirable but once you're off the table and she's off the table or you know vice versa or something Mm -hmm. then it's like okay 
all this work I was putting in, you know, four hours a week at the gym or something, I don't really need to do anymore. That was a lot of work. And I was doing it to attract a partner. Boom. I got one. I, you know, we're chained, we're chained at the, the left ring finger now. So, um, that's interesting. I will have to think about that. I mean, I, I agree. And that's, that's obviously something to think about. I just, I'm wondering if that's the kind of thing that would happen to me. No one probably thinks what would happen to them. Although some people probably say I'm only doing this to, you know, get into like wedding dress shape or something. Right. Um, well, I also think that in general, people get a little bit complacent over time anyway. I mean, you're always, when you first meet someone putting out your absolute best face and best effort, right? And then with time you get more comfortable and you start not, not being quite as fastidious about everything. And I don't, I think even if you don't get married, you'll, you'll eventually come into a more slack place. That's interesting. That might've been the case. I'm going through, like I was just talking about Nash before we got on the air was, I'm like in a happy life spot where like I'm, you know, making a lot of, or I'm trying to make some positive life changes, like, you know, working out and eating better and stuff. And it's not because like I'm looking for a new partner. Mm-hmm. It's more just like, I want to feel better. And I simultaneously am giving a lot less care about how I present myself to other people. So like I'm doing like, I'm doing this, I think explicitly for me. Yeah. And so like, you know, uh, I don't dress well at work. I don't worry about like what I have to, like, I don't worry about, uh, saying something stupid because like, I'm not trying to impress the people I'm around where like, and I think that, you know, I was, might've, maybe I'm hitting a healthy level with that. Whereas before maybe I was uh, preoccupied with it. But, uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if in my case, whether that's exceptional or everyone thinks that they're exceptional or whatever, but that's just interesting to think about. So for me, okay, that is Kyle's feedback. I actually also got feedback from, uh, Zeke Iran from an, uh, on net neutrality as well. Should we hit that real quick too? Sure. Okay. Ah, so Zikaran says, Inyash seems to be spreading misinformation <laughs> and also seems to have no idea what net neutrality actually does. Inyash constantly, and I mean constantly, damns all government regulations when net neutrality is brought up. Yet he doesn't seem to know what net neutrality actually regulated. No part of net neutrality made it harder for new ISPs to be created or get a foothold. For the amount of times that he argues that it did, I can only think that he has a fundamental misunderstanding of what net neutrality is slash was. If anything, it helps small ISPs because how could a company compete with big companies when the big companies are legally allowed to make deals with specific content providers to supply increased bandwidth or have their data not count against a data cap? If Comcast made a deal with Netflix for unlimited 4K streaming at 13 megabytes per second, 5 megabytes for everything else, there's no way a small city-scale ISP could compete. Your argument at the beginning about BitTorrenters using tons of bandwidth is also not great. When you pay for internet, you either have a cap or you don't. If you have a cap, then why block a specific source of data? If you don't, then you're paying for unlimited bandwidth and you should be able to download and upload at your given speed max 24-7. I don't care that you're a low-usage person. Their infrastructure either can or should be able to support that. If this were actually a problem, then charge us per gigabyte instead of giving us the bullshit cap and throttling. And, uh, well, so we had the fun of, I got to watch this conversation last night in real life yeah, because we all were out to dinner. So, uh, I'm, I, I'm curious what the like measured response is now that it's not like a shouting back and forth across a crowded restaurant table. So, right. well, we were, weren't, I guess we we're had to because, talk because of the volume. Yes, yeah. Not yeah. because you guys were mad. No, no. Yeah. Clarification. Yeah. We like each other. Um, so I think, I think spreading misinformation is a little bit on the harsh side, I, I don't think I am spreading misinformation. As I clarified to Zeke, uh, I do not 
have the expertise, uh, either legally or technically, to read all the net neutrality regulations, compare them to the previous regulations, and understand what exactly it means and how it's going to affect things. And uh, I don't think very many people do. Zeke said that he probably doesn't either. Um, and that is why I rely on experts to a fair uh, extent. And this gets into that tricky area when we were talking about the um, the conspiracy theories episode. Like, when is it okay to trust experts and when isn't it? When can you do better than them? And when should you think for yourself and when should you trust the consensus? And it's it's hard to say, but I do know that in the case of global warming, virtually every person who is well-versed in the field comes down very far to the side of, yes, it's happening. Yes, humans are directly responsible. Yes, it's going to be bad if we don't do something about it. And they only differ in how much of that, uh, how bad it will be, and how much we can do, and what we should do to to make things better. So uh, there, there's almost no people saying the opposite. So when you have that much of a degree of consensus opinion, I'm sure you're allowed to go along with the experts, unless you have a really damn good reason not to. And when I do my reading on net neutrality, there is the, the mid majority uh not a large majority but a majority of people do say uh similar to zeke that in in general there should be some sort of regulation over these monopolies but there is a minority that is sizable it's not like the ridiculous minority of the global warming they have some decent arguments and they are not a tiny minority that says that uh the net neutrality thing isn't really helping that much and may in fact be impeding the building of new infrastructure which is something that we may run into as a problem in the not too distant future and that they think that we would be better off without the net neutrality regulations that were introduced a few years ago going back to something more hands-off is net neutrality tied to infrastructure or is that just another talking point that because like my only my my major exposure to this is one i don't know about your source that was your primary information about this Mm -hmm. Um, but I know that sor- sources like Reddit, GitHub, uh, and you know other techie platforms put mm-hmm. big banners across their websites. Mm-hmm. You know when these are going on, saying "Let your representatives know this is a bad thing." Yeah. Um, like so, they're like from my perspective, like the techie sphere was pro net neutrality, mm-hmm. and I guess my other concern, like as far as the well, they were interestingly not as pro it as they were in the past. Although they were again the majority still pro it. A, a decent by a decent amount yeah and i guess that's interesting yeah you mentioned I, netflix is you know a weird example um but uh not weird and like dismissible but they're i think they're, i'm wondering if they're atypical because they had a particular big dog in the fight mm-hmm. um where you know so uh i think they i'm wondering if the analogy to something like global warming lasts because nobody stands to make well not like any of the major players hold on let me scratch that stand to make money from saying global warming is a problem and we should fix it. It's not like, you know, a bunch of like new indie green energy companies are like, it's terrible. We should stop it. I'm sure they all were, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't like the primary motivator saying it was bad, Mm -hmm. um, saying global warming is bad and real. Um, whereas like, I think, you know, probably, well, everybody who is, stands to make a buck says net neutrality is terrible. Right. Um, and then there might be some sane people who 
uh, don't stand, don't have anything in the fight, but also say it's a bad idea that we should do it with neutrality. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if it's easy to separate those voices, right? Right. The reason I went with the minority in this case, uh, even because they they had good some good arguments, they had some good technical points, and uh, I already have a bit of a bias against government information uh, against government regulation. The I used to not. I used to be very much for we need to rein this shit in and put it under control. But the more I see government regulation and how it actually works in real life, the more I'm disgusted by it because I have... So with government regulations, I'm a little bit negative. But when it comes to uh, corporations, I grew up cyberpunk and I have an intense loathing of all corporations and corporate America and what it does both to our democratic system and to the people that it supposedly is supposed to help. And yes, I know this is very uneconomics of me to to have a thing against corporations. I, I realize that they do wonderful things for humanity or whatever, but I personally hate them. And uh, when when I see the practical effects of regulations, it is always to... Uh, it, it is. It always comes down to corporations then start to write the regulations, like almost immediately, because politicians don't have the expertise in these industries that they would need to write good regulations. So they get help, and the help is surprise by people who work in the industry, and and that's the charitable version of how it actually goes down. Right. The the possibly realist version would be like they're not even. You know, the, the the aim of talking to lobbyists isn't even to bother informing yourself. It's to, like, you know, levy offers and see how much you can get from each one and say, okay, cool, your offer's 80000 Well, theirs is 110 I'm going to go ahead and take their offer and vote against this, whatever, right? Yeah, I like to think people aren't actually that malicious in politics. I'm sure there are some. I would like to think that, too. But and maybe I, you're right. I, I think most of them aren't that bad. But uh, I, have corporations- a hard time, I have a hard time believing that many of these bad decisions are just poor information that I wish I had known better. Okay. I mean, especially when people are screaming in their faces and calling their offices every day and saying this is a terrible idea. And they're like, if only someone had told me. Well, I mean, who are they going to believe? Rand? Their constituents, maybe? Or the people who are that are writing them checks? Like, What what if half your constituents believe that the Earth was created 7,000 years ago? I mean, come on. You got to... So, I guess, that, I mean, fair point. But I, it's, it's hard for... I, we can talk about this another time. Okay. I, I don't have a lot to say other than like, I would like to say that like, Hey, Nyash, I'm going to tell you about this cool thing. And here's $50,000. Do you think I'm right? Right. Like, it sounds weird. If it also comes with a check or a promise or whatever, you know, cause yeah. you can't literally hand them cash legally, but somehow you do. So yeah, I, yeah, I just, I believe that corporations are only ever motivated by profit because that is literally what they were created to do. And, uh, Charles Strauss has, has this term for them, alien invaders, because they're, they're like non-human optimization processes uh ted chang recently wrote an article which said it was unfortunate it said basically the real ais are um are is modern economics and uh that's that's what we actually have to look out for okay i'm being uncharitable in summarizing it poorly no but i just heard that somewhere yeah but he he said basically we don't have to worry about ai because we already have non-human optimization processes here they are corporations their only motivation is to create more wealth for shareholders and they are already helping ruin the earth and I agree with him on all those points, except for when he says, and therefore we don't have to worry about AI. Because to me, this is just like AI writ small. 
these are non-human optimization processes and they are wreaking havoc on the earth just imagine how bad it'll become once they have the intelligence of a fucking ai behind them where and did I, no where did humans I, at all behind the wheel where did i hear this paraphrase recently because your paraphrasing was like the exact same summary that i heard somewhere like in the last two days and this oh i know damn it Okay, well, I'm familiar with that okay. line of thinking, and I heard it very recently somewhere, and I can't remember where it was. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so whenever corporations say something like, we care about the environment, or we care about people, I'm like, no. You care about your bottom line, and you care about other people thinking that you care about the, you know, the social justice or whatever it is, because that gets you more money. But fuck you. And you get, you, know, you get to look good and bring on new, better people. Like, for example, you mentioned that your last job gave you, like, one business day a year paid paid time to like do some bullshit charity blanket thing mm-hmm. um my job i was volunteering whatever i wanted i got to actually volunteer at dcc and get paid for it. denver nice. comic-con yeah so this one my same my job lets me do that too lets me pick my own charity and i don't they're talking about like bringing on some for us to pick from if we want but we can do whatever we want mm-hmm. but it's like part of that is like don't we look good letting our you know our employees or paying them to do the right you know to do the charitable action on their own mm-hmm. but you know I mean, we just had Robin Hanson on, so I don't know how much it, how much it's worth digging into. Uh, if you if you buy and read the Elephant in the Brain, I think that mystery will be, or it won't it won't seem like the corporation is going against its own interests. Uh, once you understand what they're what they're going at, it's kind of obvious. But I wanted to plug his book again because it was great. I'm I'm just finishing up the last chapter on politics. Nice. Yeah, but yeah, what what I was getting to with all that is that um, when I see the debate about net neutrality. Like other people seem to see the little guy, the populace rising up against uh, the monopolists trying to control their internet access. And what I see is just giant corporations going at it to see who gets the law to benefit their business the most. I mean, that's what it was last time with Netflix fighting against the ISPs. And now that Netflix got theirs, they don't care anymore. They bowed out of the fight this last time. The other side of that coin, though, I hate to interrupt, is is like it's not like the ISPs are like the victim here, right? No, no, so neither like, side is the victim. So they're it's, also standing to make a bunch of money by getting yes. their, by getting their stuff. So like, yeah, yeah. J- as long as you're going to get to that, cause that, yeah. okay, good. That, that is where I was going. <laughs> that it's basically two giants. I refer to them as dragons, Strassies as alien invaders, but non-human things fighting over the laws so that they can manipulate the laws to give them a bigger business advantage to grab more wealth. And our interests as people do not matter at all. And so when people are rallied to one side, to me, that looks like, oh, one side is very good at presenting their case and being like, we care about social justice and we care about the environment and aren't we great? And it, it to me, it feels like, like people are being used to support one side in a corporate battle and thinking that they are supporting their own interests, which kind of sickens me because i don't ever want to be on a corporation side and i guess in some cases it can be to someone's advantage to support one corporation or over another but what annoys me is that i would like there to not be that battle in the first place which you can do by removing or reducing regulations the less government is involved in deciding which dragon wins the dragon war, the less they're going to spend money trying to manipulate the government, the less they're going to try to uh, get the public rallying to their side. It just, I would like it to not be a legal issue in the first place. And um, to go uh, along with that, 
in, in well you, you looked like you were about to say something well, i was gonna say i think we'd all like that not to be the case mm-hmm. but you know as it is if the government regulations are keeping the world's largest scariest dragon in check so that the other dragons can fight and you know they can so like i guess the giant the world's largest dragon is busy fighting these smaller dragons because government regulations are keeping the giant one from taking over the world mm-hmm. like that's a better state of affairs than when the government takes its reins off the giant dragon and it's able to eat all of its opponents and then us, right? Yeah. So, like, I think that's how people feel about net neutrality, right? So if, ne- think- if Netflix had a dog in the fight to make money or whatever, yes, they were doing it for self-serving interests. But the interests that they had was, like, we want people to buy our shit and make it you know better and easier for them to get. And the interest of the ISPs align less with us than Netflix's do, right? Yeah, but I... And the ISPs are the bigger dragon in this. Yes, but in the end, there's still a dragon that wins. People are still not represented, and our laws are being perverted for their wars instead of for actually serving people. I think if people really cared about this sort of thing, they would vote to spend tax dollars like uh, we did up in, I believe it was up in Longmont. There's been a few uh, cities and towns around the nation now who've run their own fiber. For Collins won a battle like that recently, too. Yeah, and they had to fight against the corporations to do it, right? Yeah, and they, I think people would say they, they only won because the corporations were, were had their hands tied in some areas legally to, complete, to stop being able to completely shutting them down. Okay. And so without regulations, they would have stood no chance. Well, no, the regulations are the only thing which let the corporations meddle in that in the first place. I mean, a corporation can't say, no, you can't run fiber. They don't have the cops. They don't have the armies at their disposal. If the government wants to run fiber, it fucking runs fiber. Unless there's regulations that makes the federal government step in and say, no, city government, you can't run fiber because of these rules where we have made these deals with these dragons. I mean, it's the regulation that made it that the Fort Collins had to fight. Okay, I think I see your point. So you're... You're less anti-net neutrality, and you're more like, if I could wave a wand and do away with all the regulations, I would. But because I can't, I'm willing to just try and get rid of the ones that I can. Well, most regulations. I mean, there's some that are legit important. Yeah. No, I I meant specifically with stuff like the internet and the telecom and all that stuff right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Net neutrality-related things. Mm -hmm. So, like, because you can't do away with all of them, you're okay doing with with a few of them on the way to all of them. Is that your position, maybe? Yes. That, in general, I default to there being less regulation. And when I saw uh, a number of economists and other tech people saying, you know what? this net neutrality thing isn't really that big an issue and it might even be better. Some of them said it might even be better without it. Then I was like, okay. Okay. I'm not saying I, I necessarily agree, but I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously like, I think, people uh, don't agree with me. I'm less informed than, you know, probably most of our listeners on this. It's just like, I think the end of having to, you know, being able to do away with like the regulations and let people just finally get out and do their own thing is great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whittling away at the regulations little by little might be the path there. But I think doing away with some rather than others, you know, on that path could lead to a lot of harm. So it's not right. like, so as the things are now, it sucks. Mm-hmm. Things could be worse with fewer and they could be better with like almost none. Yeah. But so like maybe on the path to almost none, assuming we ever get there, could, there be, could be very be, bumpy. Yeah. No, um, and I, I acknowledge that. I just, I hope that isn't the case. And I saw enough things from a few people I trust, like, uh, well, I mean, like Tyler Cohen, as I said before, I'm a fan of his, that I thought, okay, it probably won't be that bad. And I mean, obviously, it hasn't been so far, but it's also only been like a month or two, right? We haven't really had a chance to feel any of the impacts yet. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. 
Um, however, I do agree that they should not be fucking advertising things as unlimited data and then sneakily throttling your shit. They should just straight up tell you how much data you get and or charge you by the gigabit. The other this thing, dishonesty thing, but fucking pisses me off. There's there's another dishonesty thing where it's like you pay for seventy five megs a, a month or seventy five megs a second, mm-hmm. and then the fine print in your contract says that's up to seventy five megs a second. So when you have five, yeah, like I frequently have at my place where I pay for seventy five. Mm. Um, that's like, oh, you're you're not paying for seventy five. You're paying for up to seventy five. Right. So presumably, if nobody else in in your surrounding three miles was using internet, you could have seventy five. But because they're using internet, you know, we have to, we, we only have so much to give around. Yeah. Just be fucking honest. You know, I, if it was, if I was paying for 10 and I was getting 10, I'd be like, you know, whatever. I'm getting what I'm paying for. But here it's like, I feel like I'm, so, you know, yeah. just, just complaining about, you know, that's, that's standard giant corporate stuff though. So, exactly. Yeah. Although to be fair to, to Netflix, mm-hmm. I haven't had an outage from Netflix in years. Mm-hmm. But when I used to, it would be very, you know, seldom. Couple, I remember there was a couple of years where like there was maybe half a dozen outages and it was for a few hours. Mm-hmm. They'd send me an email and say, "Hey, you were down for six hours yesterday. You might not have noticed, but here's like eighty three cents back." Oh, cool! And it's like you know that's pennies literally to them and to me. But that was the amount of time that I lost being able to be on Netflix if I'd wanted it that I was paying for, yeah. which is a super awesome gesture. Yeah. Never got that from Comcast, no. and I never will. <laughs> no. When we first moved in here, we had some outages for the first few weeks, and it sucked. And yeah, no, they they were like, well, I guess you're just paying us for those two days you didn't have any internet. Yeah, and when you prorate down the days for Comcast, like I pay like three bucks a day, mm-hmm. and you know if I and again it's six bucks. What you know, it's, I'm not, not going to break the bank. It's kind of just the principle. It's yeah, like, am, exactly. I pay, am I paying for the service or not? Yeah. I don't know. That's just me ranting at at Comcast in particular. <laughs> Shakes <That's> fist <laughs> at cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I had it pointed out to me recently that having a choice between two things sometimes isn't really that much of a choice. And I mean, I, I, it's still something I'm glad, for example, that there's Lowe's and home Depot because they are competing against each other. And that helps keep them honest, helps keep the prices low. But like in the phones market, there's really only two options. You're either getting an iPhone or an Android, right? And they're different. And I guess they help to keep each other's prices down, but like on an iPhone, you can't buy anything from um, uh, the Amazon Kindle app because in, in order to make an in-app purchase, uh, Apple gets a cut of it. I don't know if it's like 5% or I've heard 30% or something, but Amazon basically just said, no, we don't want to give you a cut of it. And Apple said, okay, fine, then you don't, you don't get to do in-app purchases on our phone. And if you want to buy uh, something for your uh, Kindle app, you have to go through the website and then download it. And that's kind of a pain in the ass. And they have not been pressured into allowing that to be the case by uh, the fact that Google, uh, that, that the Android phones exist. They're different enough that the competition pressures have not helped the consumer in that way because it would be a boon to the consumer if we could do the in-app purchases. And I mean, that's that's a fairly tame example. I mean, to me, the idea like of having two major internet providers if one wants to raise their prices a couple bucks, especially like, I still maintain that the main, my main contention here is that most people don't have access to two good ones. Mm. And many people, like what, 30% of Americans are lucky to have access to one good one. Yeah. And so like, if that person wants to fuck you, you're like, okay, well, do I want internet in my house? It's like, you know, people argue about it. Like it's not a necessity. And will you die without it? Probably not. But like a lot of people need it for their jobs. A lot of people need it for like, uh, just having a good life. Like you don't need, um, 
in lots of cases, you can't interface with modern society without a decent internet connection. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like having a, a cell phone, right? Like, you don't need one to have a life, but, like, you almost do to have a life in the 21st century. In so, America, it's a lot like having a car in most major cities. You need one. Right. There's a few where the public transport is good enough that you don't, but usually you do need a car. And if you don't have one, you're crippled. I, I feel the same way about internet and maybe a more dramatic way even. So, like, the idea that... The, the competition as it exists now is enough. I don't think it is. I don't think that's the point you were making. You were arguing that it might get better, or hopefully will. And well, I, I was arguing that sometimes the competition isn't all that competitive anyway. That they're distinct enough as, as brands that there's some abilities to switch between the two of them, which keeps them from being runaway monopolies, but not nearly as much as we would like. It's not like these services are a commodity yet. Yeah. And I think that's just that's like I said before. I think that's the factor of it being having a physical infrastructure, right? Like you can't. Uh, well, neither iPhones nor the Androids have any physical infrastructure. I, I meant I meant uh, internet to your house. Oh, that um, yeah yeah yeah. Um, and I mean, there's infrastructure of like connecting to the internet from your phone. Um, yeah. Those those that obviously you know has has stuff involved. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a whole thing. We'll see how it's it a shakes complicated out. subject. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of just like, I mean, obviously, since we're past the point, I mean, I, I still text that, like, the resist spot that lets me send a letter to my representative and stuff about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we care about this, but I don't think those do anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, let me rephrase that. Do contact your people and, and bug them, because, you know, if they get enough people to get in there, you know, to, to send in information or send in comments saying, I won't vote for you if you don't vote for net neutrality, then, they you know, they'll say, well, if I want to keep my job, I better do it. I better actually do what I, my, my role is supposed to be, which is, you know, abide by the will of my constituents. So let them know how you feel. Yeah. Scratch that whole thing about me saying it doesn't matter. I feel helpless. And that's why I said that, but I don't think that's necessarily true. So for anyone who uh, cares about these things enough, uh, a actual phone call is, is worth more than, you know, uh, something sent in online. And an actual letter is worth a ton because that takes effort. Like, they, they don't get all that many letters. I think I heard, like, one letter's worth 30 phone calls, and hmm. I don't even know how many bot messages, you know, it takes to make up a phone call because it, that's costly to actually type something up and print it out and put a stamp on an envelope and take it to a mailbox. Like, if you write it out by hand, that's just insane, you know? So the, the, more, the, the more obvious effort you had to put into something, the more it really matters. So if you do it in a wood burning and then ship that to their office, then, you know, <laughs> carve it in stone. Right. At that point, we may be getting a little excessive. <laughs> yeah, you should just buy them a dinner if you can afford <laughs> to do that. Be a lobbyist. Okay. I, I think that's all we have. And that's all we have, too. Um, I hope the episode came out okay with the sound stuff. I'm sure it... Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about this on the air. I'm, I'm rambling. It's time to get off the... Time to, time to get off the air, so... Yeah. And once again, many props to Kyle for helping us sound good and making this episode and this podcast everything it can be. Kyle Moore is a really, the real reason why we still have a show. Yeah. People would people hated our editing because, well, especially mine. Enosh knows what he's doing, but hey. you're also busy. So Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so thanks to Kyle. Thank you very much. All right. Goodbye, y'all. See you in a couple weeks. Later. Oh, oh, oh. Also, um, I should throw this in as well uh i am going to be bringing back my old methods of rationality podcast uh so there'll be more rationalist fiction soon next week it's starting up with a single short story that i have gotten published in analog and then a month after that we will start into our full novel length uh 
feature, I guess. You mean a week from today, not a week from the airing of this episode. So No, a week from the airing of this episode. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And then a month after that, I'm going to start in on Crystal Society by Max Harms, which is, um, you know, I think well-known-ish in rationalist fiction circles and very much loved. Anyway, as a previous guest, if you want a, a quick primer on the, the book, well, I guess if you don't want any spoilers, don't listen to it. That's but, true. There will be lots of spoilers. But Max Harms was on an episode, and he's awesome. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. All right. Bye.